welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Last program, I shared a really big story with you the Greek myth of Demeter and Persephone, based on the Homeric hymn to Demeter. And I told you that not only was this a very, very old story, but that it was also the catalyst for the Eleusinian Mysteries, a very powerful secret initiation cult that relieved thousands of people not only Greeks, but people from all parts of the world uh, from their fear of death. And this Eleusinian mysteries survived for hundreds of years. I also said that Demeter was the first initiate into these mysteries. So what I want to talk about today, what I find myself thinking about... (laughs) in the story is this idea of initiation, what they were initiated into, what Demeter in particular was initiated into, and um, the truth that was discovered. I think it's fairly obvious based on the things that I've already shared with you that the truth may be a truth, but maybe the truth, is the truth of the relationship between life and death. And not only their relationship, but their shared identity. What is living contains its own death, and what appears dead holds the seed, the potential, the material for life, right? I mean, one gives way to the other, and also contains the other. So life and death, I think, are really, uh, can be imagined kind of like that yin-yang symbol that we've, we often see of black and white, where they're separate things, but each also contains a dot of the other. And in the last program, I, I think I alluded to that and touched on the truth of this and the material level by mentioning the seasons, the vegetal cycle, if you will. And that is a very profound. Um, I talk about that a lot in this program, how our distance from food and the earth and the reality of the earth uh, makes us sort of oblivious to the conditions that really make our lives possible. And so it feels kind of trivial and cliche to say, oh, the winter is important and the earth has to rest and everything goes through a process and so do we. And But that, nevertheless, it's true. Uh, and I, I do think that our ancestors lived in closer proximity to the profundity of that truth. So in other words, those who made the long trip to Eleusis, that place of happy arrival, 
likely grew their own food, may have often uh, experienced hunger, um, certainly were not as cavalier as we are about the significance of the cycles and life and death on the material level. And yet, all of the things that we experience through our senses also exist as concepts and metaphors and points of perspective then and now. And so today I want to talk a little bit more about this relationship between life and death and that common identity and our initiation into all of that uh, from that perspective of metaphor, of a way of, of looking at our psychological, soul, spirit, life. <laughs> now, um, the brief sketch of the story. So we have Demeter and Persephone, mother and daughter pair, uh, exclusive to each other. And one day, Persephone is out gathering flowers with friends, and she plucks a particularly beautiful flower, the Narcissus, which we are told the earth produces at exactly that moment, Gaia, the primal earth, the planet earth. Um, at the request of Hades, the god of the underworld, she sends up this beautiful flower, Persephone plucks it, the earth opens up, Hades comes up with his chariot, grabs this young girl, takes her off into the underworld, uh, where he then makes her queen of the underworld. Demeter and Hecate and Helios all hear Persephone's cries. Demeter looks for her, can't find her. She runs into Hecate, the goddess of one of the goddesses of the crossroads, who says, Yes, I heard it. Persephone was abducted. I don't know by whom. Demeter realizes that Helios, the sun god, must have seen it and goes to him, and he tells her what happened. Demeter then goes to Zeus, the big king of the Olympian gods, uh, and insists that he make his brother Hades give Persephone back, and he won't do it. And ultimately, Demeter falls into a deep depression and completely withdraws from the world, and this means that she no longer does her job of keeping the plants and the grains growing. And starvation sets in. The human beings are no longer making sacrifices to the gods, and so now the Olympians are all upset about this, and they uh, insist that Zeus do something. So he sends Hermes down to tell Hades that he's going to have to give Persephone back. Now, in the meantime, we don't really know what Persephone's been doing down there. Um, there's a lot of ambiguity about that, and some people tell the story in ways that remove the ambiguity, but I think it's important to keep that alive in the story. We know she was very upset and didn't want to go. Um, we also know that somehow or another... She was given a pomegranate and ate several of the seeds, thereby establishing a permanent connection to the underworld. So when 
Hermes goes down and talks to Hades and retrieves Persephone, she can't stay on the above world, in the sunny world with her mother, all the time anymore. And she goes back and forth, and for part of the year she is in the underworld. And this gives rise then to this interpretation of the story as being part of the story of the seasons and the vegetable cycle. Okay, but we have already said that we're going to talk about this from a metaphorical and soul perspective. So the first thing I want to note is that Persephone and Demeter, like life and death, are related, intimately related. They can't be separated from each other, really. And they also have a common identity. We can read the two goddesses as a story of a mother and daughter having parallel experiences. We can also read them as two aspects of one being, of one psyche or archetype. For example, Persephone and Demeter both make a descent. They both go down. Persephone goes into the underworld. She is abducted into the underworld by Hades. Demeter goes into what we call a depression. She completely withdraws from the world. She's abducted too. She loses her whole reason for being, the central, her central love, uh, her motivation. She also goes into a singular, dark, closed space when she withdraws into her temple. Both of them spend some time in a realm where there is feeling and inner activity, perhaps, a a realm in which outer action is ineffectual. Nothing can be changed. Neither one of them can really do anything to change uh, the condition in which they find themselves. So they make this descent together. And it's not exactly the same. So once again, we're talking about relations, something that's related, and yet they have a similar experience because they are two aspects of the same thing. What puts this in motion, do you think? I think the story suggests that there's a desire, a quest for something that leads to this abduction and this withdrawal, this descent. And it may be consciously defined, but I suspect that it's much more often unconsciously contained, that it's felt at a level below words, that we want something, that we have a soul's longing for something, and we might make various attempts to try and get it, being human, or in this case, talking about goddesses who certainly have a lot of human characteristics, we want whatever it is we want to come to us 
as part of an easy process. We certainly don't want anything violent. So in the story, you know, okay, desire, quest, this unconscious longing for something, all right, well, so Persephone is out looking for flowers, beautiful flowers. But she allows this search for beautiful flowers to take her a very long way away from home. In the story, we're told she ends up on the Nicaean Plain, which is the land of Dionysus, the wine god, the dissolver of boundaries. One way of thinking about that is that Persephone is like out pushing the outer limits. You know, she has been her mother's daughter. She's been brought up very tenderly, but also very possessively by her mother. And now she's looking for something else, and she's out there moving further and further and further away from her mother's hearth. And then the flower that she plucks, a narcissus associated in other Greek myths with this beautiful self, but also an innocently self-absorbed self, self-image. And the earth brings that flower up. The earth pushes that flower up to aid Hades in bringing her down. So I wonder if there's a quest there for a new identity for a new sense of self, for a different form of beauty felt somewhere in the depths of Persephone's being that's met then by Hades and precipitates this violent abduction. It's sort of interesting to see a parallel there, too, between mother and daughter in the way that Persephone was conceived Persephone, the blossoming fruit of Demeter's seed. (laughs) Um, Lots of different stories about how Demeter got pregnant because she did not want a husband. She did not want a partner. And all of them involve a certain complicity. I mean, the one story that I shared with you is really not a story, but more a suggestion that Demeter wanted a child and so she seduced her brother Zeus. All of the Olympians cheat, but still. And then she kept her daughter from having a father. The other two stories that are told more often involve Demeter being raped. But they're kind of funny rapes because she tries to get away from her pursuer by turning herself into the female version of an animal which the god who is pursuing her commonly assumes. So, for example, Poseidon. Poseidon often turns himself into a stallion, and so interesting that Demeter turns herself into a mare in order to get away from Poseidon. Same thing with Zeus. If it was Zeus who was the father, she turns herself into a cow to get away from Zeus, who often turns himself into a bull. So you see what I mean by this unconscious quest for some profound transformation of self and life. And on one level, we don't want that. We don't want the violence. We don't want to be taken down. And yet, somehow it, it's necessary, at least in the context of some of the things that we're looking for. 
Well, what could that necessity be? I'd like to suggest that it's a loss of innocence. We have our upper world sunshine. That's where we like to live. That's where both of these goddesses are living. But that's only one part of life, isn't it? There's also the shadow side. There is also that parallel universe, which we are being encouraged to understand as a place of tremendous wealth and life and vitality. In fact, when Persephone goes, and remember Persephone as daughter, but also as an aspect of Demeter, when Persephone goes into the underworld, she brings that life. In fact, I find myself wondering if Hades needed, wanted Persephone in the way that a seed needs to be planted in order for that life potential to be present in what's fertile but won't sprout. Now, when I told this story to a group of women here in Joshua Tree recently, we arrived at a really beautiful insight about this abduction and loss of innocence. We realized that the story could be read as a reminder about the necessity of dealing with our shadow, of going into the unexplored and often denied corners of self and life. And I think that makes a lot of sense in the context of this story and the idea that we must lose our innocence, lose our innocence about life, lose our innocence about ourselves. And in the Jungian world, which is where this this notion, this metaphor of shadow comes from, there's a lot of talk about the need to claim your shadow, to explore your shadow. And there is a moral and ethical component to that. As self-responsible, mature individuals, adults, we need to accept the existence of our shadow and come to terms with it as best we can in order to uh, be responsible for our faults, own our own projections, so on and so forth. All of this very important work. But the shadow and the need to explore and integrate the shadow, that is also essential to the life of the soul. In addition to the moral and ethical implications of being with the shadow, there's also the need to investigate and own a variety of perspectives. In the Jungian formulation, the point or the goal of life isn't moral perfection, and it's not happiness, it's meaning. And further, that image of individuation, the drive for self-realization in Jungian terms, is the achievement of wholeness, not goodness, not purity. And this is because 
uh, depth psychology. I hope you're noticing the word depth psychology is about the life of the soul. And you can think of this as being that poetic feeling aspect of self, but it's it's the it's the part of us that understands metaphor, that understands and lives the true value of things because we know they end. So therefore takes us close to death. And it's a longing for experience. A longing for experience, including things that are violent and difficult and frightening and terrible. It's that part of us that can make meaning and find something beautiful in all of that. It's hard to put into words. Um, When we were talking about this in this women's group I mentioned earlier, we came up with this image of um, the soul and being in a soul perspective, responding to the soul's call for life as being similar to taking a walk out in the moonlight as opposed to being out you know, under the noonday sun, being hammered by that brightness. So, This loss of innocence is essential for us to have the soul experience, to be whole, to acquire and come to terms with our inherent complexity and the complexity of the rest of life. And this often requires violence. It's going to go against ego, against the uninitiated personality. Of course, knowing this, having this insight, doesn't necessarily make it easy to live. And this takes me to a quote from Jungian Anne Olenov that was shared with me recently that I've been turning to as I'm going through some of my own initiations right now. She says that, When you're in pain, you need to relate to the pain. Don't just suffer it. Relate to it as you suffer it. This is how we make something out of it, friends. And this is also where we find compassion for it. Um, A story that came to me recently, it's an Inuit tale about a skeleton woman. And it was popularized by... Clarissa Pinkola Estes in Women Who Run With the Wolves. In this story, in brief, there is a fisherman, lonely fisherman, out in his boat by himself, and he goes over into some waters that most of the time, most of the fishermen avoid, but he's hungry, and you get the sense that he's also just discouraged by life generally. And he drifts over into these waters and puts down his hooks and lines and snags something. And he starts tugging on it and it feels really big and he gets excited because it seems like it's going to be a big fish, a lot of food. Now, what he has hooked is the rib cage of the skeleton of a woman that has been peacefully resting on the bottom of the sea for a long time, 
And when she starts getting tugged and pulled around, she resists vigorously. And there's a battle back and forth between the skeleton woman under the water who is trying to free herself from the hook and line of the fisherman and the fisherman up in his boat, tugging and pulling and tugging and pulling. And finally, he wins and he pulls her and he pulls her up above the water and he sees what he's got. And he sees the skull with the you know, sea plants hanging out of the empty eye sockets and he freaks out and starts rowing for shore. Well, he's dragging the skeleton woman along behind him. And she keeps trying to slow it down and slow it down. And she's pushing up big waves against the boat. And, but everything that she's doing is propelling the boat faster and faster towards the shore. And everything that he's doing is bringing her along with him. And they end up on the beach together. And for reasons that he can't explain, uh, the fisherman just grabs up all of these bones and carries them back to his home and throws them in a pile. And he builds the fire and warms himself and has some food. And as he sits there, he looks over at the bones. And now they don't seem particularly scary. And there's something really poignant about them. He can see that this was once a human being. And he's filled with compassion for whatever life this once was. And goes over and uh, starts moving the bones around and rearranging them and very tenderly lays out the skeleton in its proper order. And when he is done with this, then he goes and crawls into bed and covers himself up with a mountain of blankets and goes to sleep. Well, the skeleton woman, thus arranged and touched with so, ten- so much tenderness, uh, starts to shift around in the warmth of the firelight. And she crawls over to where the man is asleep and puts her bony hand under the blankets on his chest and feels his heart beating. And he doesn't wake up. And so she slips her bony hand into his chest and pulls out his heart. And she holds it up to her lips and blows on it. And then she starts to tap on it like a little mini drum with her fingers. Boom, da da boom, da da boom, da da boom, 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 and fills the room up with the sound of life. And as she's doing this, flesh starts to appear on her bones and muscles and sinews bind her together. And when she has acquired a body, she puts his heart back into his chest, and then she slips into bed with him and wraps her arms around him, and in the morning they wake up together. What was dead comes back to life because it is invested with life 
and that is feeling that comes from that understanding of our commonality, right? Well, so um, back to all in all for a second. And this need to relate to suffering, your suffering and suffering in the world. She says, if you will contemplate your lack of inner aliveness and impregnate it with the interest born of alarm at your inner death, then something can take shape in you. For your inner emptiness conceals just as great a fullness if only you will allow it to penetrate into you. If you prove receptive to this quote-unquote call of the wild, the longing for fulfillment will quicken the sterile wilderness of your soul as rain quickens the dry earth. When Persephone and Demeter are abducted, they are both abducted into a dry and sterile place, a place of total withdrawal a place that appears dead, a place where they are not motivated or moved to do anything. And then it changes. According to the story, there's no food because Demeter's not at work, so no sacrifices, so the Olympians are upset, so Zeus makes Hades give Persephone up. What's the point here? The point here is that the connection You see, the connection between the above-world life and the life-giving properties down below, the connection between mother and daughter, life and death, destruction and creation, that has been established. The ongoing relationship has been made clear by this action. The change has been wrought. So... Persephone coming back up and their reunion, that doesn't end it. Nothing is ended. Everything is transformed. What was thought to be lost forever is restored and changed. It is changed into something more complex, something more meaningful, something with dimension gained by its contact with the shadows and the shades. And this happens to us, friends. Something in us, a call from the soul for experience, for depth, for greater truth, precipitates an action that is often violent from the perspective of the ego that may well take us into a period of seeming deadness, emptiness, and sterility. It will, however, give way. It will, however, give way. Because these states are not only related, they are two aspects of the same thing. Now, that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. If you're new to Myth in the Mojave, I invite you to go to the website or to the Myth in the Mojave Facebook page and subscribe. So you receive regular program announcements every time I release a new episode. I am so grateful to those of you who are members of the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. I am also grateful to those of you who share this program with others and spread the word about what we're doing 
here together with these stories. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.